Hello, everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday service. Um, if you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Um, and before we begin, uh, if you would like to, you could go to our website. It should be uh, posted below the video. Because in the notes, there's, um, I included a map that shows kind of what's going on uh, politically-wise and just how big Assyria was in comparison to, let's say, Judah and Israel and Syria um, and why Assyria is considered such a major power at the time. Um, and so that's in the sermon notes. So if you'd like to go ahead and look at that real quick, you can. Um, otherwise, again, if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. And we'll start with verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet, wand, write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hajbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. So chapter 8 begins with Isaiah being told by the Lord to take a tablet and write upon it. This is not a tablet of stone, but one of wood or metal. Generally, it would be better described as, let's say, a placard. Isaiah is told specifically to write common characters on it. The likely explanation for this is that it is meant to be understood by anyone who would read it. The tablet is meant to belong to one Maher Shalal Hashbaz. His name is ominous as it means speeding to the plunder, hurrying to the spoil. We are not told who this is at the moment. Along with this, we learn that there will be two witnesses to the writing of the tablet. It is interesting since we notice, I will get reliable witnesses. In this case, it is God speaking and therefore the one who brings the witnesses, even though it's through Isaiah. As to why God would bring witnesses, we are unsure. At least one scholar has thought of this as a marriage document, but that seems unlikely. Others have wondered whether it is some kind of other legal document, in which case witnesses would be needed. It could also be for the witnesses themselves, though, um, as Uriah is likely the same priest who updated the altar in Jerusalem after that of the altar in Damascus in 2 Kings 16. Thus, they would be in need of receiving encouragement, just as the king did, to not look at Syria or Israel as a threat. Finally, it may simply be a way for the prophetic nature of the writing to be enforced. If witnesses see that this was written before the events took place, then it is a clear message that it's from God. So now we come to verses 3 and 4. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So at this point, Isaiah went to the prophetess. This is a way of saying that he had intercourse for the first time with her. Thus, it seems as though Isaiah had become a widower and then he had remarried to this woman um, who is unnamed. That she is called a prophetess instead of Isaiah's wife is interesting. There are three main views. The first is that it is a term for a prophet's wife. Another is that she was a prophetess in her own right. The third view ties in with the second in that she is by definition a prophetess since through her the prophetic word came into being. 
We see this as she bears a son, and his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. In this, then, we learn of the one who the writing was for. God had given Isaiah a prophetic message for his son, that God had prior um, to the conception of the child given this word to Isaiah is a sign that he is with his people just as he claimed. We then learn that before the child can say, my father or my mother, the problem of Israel-Syria alliance against Judah would be gone. This is all very reminiscent of what we learned in the previous chapter, that a son would be born and before he was old enough to reject evil and choose good, the other nations would be dispersed. It's because of this that many hold that Maher Shalal Hashbaz was at least the immediate sign given with the later fulfillment um, being made in the person of Jesus Christ. We also notice, too, that when it discusses the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, those are the capitals of both Judah and Syria. Ultimately, we are unsure, though, if this meant to be a fully uh, particular mom and dad or the first utterance of a very young child, like a, a mama, papa. In either case, the point is that the imminent threat will no longer be a threat soon enough. Now we come to verses 5 through 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Hermalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all of its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. At some point in the future, Isaiah received another word from the Lord. We are unsure who the people are who refused the waters of Shiloh. The waters of Shiloh were in Judah around Jerusalem. And if that is the case, then it might be a reflection of Israel's rejection of Jerusalem and its temple as the place of God's choosing. Alternatively, it may be a reflection of the people of Judah, who are rejecting faith in God, which is like a peaceful stream in favor of the mighty river um, that is Assyria. The latter seems to be the better view contextually, since Judah becomes the focus later on in verse 8. So it does seem likely that the people here are Judeans. That they rejoice over uh, Rezin and the son of Hermalia, then, may represent the people rejoicing over the fact that they had been defeated by Assyria. The people were so encapsulated by the might of Assyria over their enemies that they believed that they were safe. Thus, in rejoicing over their demise, they are unable to see the true problem which is about to happen. Because what does happen? The Lord is bringing up the river, the king of Assyria. This is a really great analogy for what is going on. Assyria came across the river Euphrates, which is a great river. In contrast to this is Shiloh, which was more akin to, to um, a stream, or, or at least not quite the same capacity of a river as Euphrates by any means. As such, the imagery of a wild river is being brought to the forefront. The river that is Assyria will overflow. It will not only encompass the land, which is normally does. Instead, it will pour out over its banks. In other words, the Assyrians came for Israel and Syria, but their appetite will not be slated just against them. Instead, they will spill out into Judah, up to Judah's neck. In this sense, the onslaught will be great, and Judah will feel the repercussions of siding with Assyria instead of having faith in God. 
that the neck is emphasized also shows that the whole people will not be destroyed, but that doesn't make the devastation any less significant. As the armies of Assyria spread over the land of Judah, just as a river does in its flood. It's interesting at this point, with the final phrase, will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel should hearken us back to the child of chapter 7, who will be named Emmanuel. It is even more interesting since the land belongs to Emmanuel. Still, it leaves us with this. It is likely that in this context it refers to Isaiah's son, since the prophetic word came to Isaiah about God being with the people and it was fulfilled by Maher Shalal Hajbaz. It is likely this is who is being addressed. Yet, there is something about the land belonging to him. In this sense, it is another penetrating thought to the one to come who is Christ. It is ultimately his land. He is the Emmanuel fulfilled. But, um, but just as Mahashalal Hashbaz was a prophetic sign for the time of Isaiah, Christ is the same sign who fulfills the prophecy just as he fulfills all of the Old Testament. So it seems contextually... It's another double fulfillment going on where Emmanuel is looking forward, but it still has an assemblance for the people back then. Now we come to verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, admittedly, the final two verses could go with either verses 5 through 8 or spill into the next group of verses. Um, This happens a lot in Isaiah. Ultimately, we're going to look at them today because one could almost imagine Isaiah receiving a new thought, a new perspective at the mention of Emmanuel. Despite the devastating onslaught, Emmanuel, God with us. Thus, we have verses 9 and 10, which are almost a taunt. Verse 9 encourages the people who are ready to come to battle to come, but they will be broken. Despite these nations coming from afar for warfare against God's people, they will not succeed, and said they will be broken and shattered themselves. Though they come together in order to cast out the people of God, in the end their counsels will not come to fruition. We are reminded of the beginning of chapter 7, where Syria and Israel are plotting and Judah is encouraged to stand on faith because if they do not stand on faith, they will not stand at all. So it is with the nations, despite their military prowess and might, in the end, it will not stand. What will stand are those who belong to God, those whom God is with. They will not overcome God's beloved. Now we come to the main point of these verses, and they are to show what will happen with Assyria. Despite Judah willingly trusting in Assyria, the result is Assyria will not only come against Israel and Syria, but will ultimately come against Judah as well. The onslaught will be devastating. But despite this, Isaiah knows something. Specifically, he knows God. God is with his people. And in the end, whatever schemes or plots of man will not overcome the one who is high and lifted up. So far, we have come into the 8th chapter of Isaiah. As we do, I can't help but reminisce over our time spent with the prophets Joel and Amos. I can say, after having gone over even this little amount of the prophets, it is a shame we do not spend more time with them. 
Their wisdom, their honesty, and the desire to glorify their God in obedience to his word is something truly remarkable and something which I think we could all stand to grasp, appreciate, and emulate more in our lives. That said, in today's text in particular, we find an interesting truth which seems to be the undercurrent of this entire section which started way back in chapter 6. That undercurrent deals with the choice of following God or not and the repercussions of that singular choice. In today's text, we see especially how the repercussions of not following God will lead to a great devastation for the people. The people have been encouraged to follow God who is described as a gentle flow of waters in Shaloah. Isn't it the case that following after God in faithfulness truly does lead to our fullest and greatest measure of peace? And isn't it the case that when we are are walking with God, it is like walking next to peaceful waters where our souls are at ease? Yet the people have chosen another path. They have chosen to find peace not in what God offers, the gentleness of God's grace, love, and faithfulness. Instead, they have chosen the way which is a raging river torrent. While God is sure and steady, ever dutiful, always staying the course in his faithfulness to his word and his covenant, the river's own surety is questionable. It seems powerful and trustworthy. Yet when it floods over its banks, it leads to swallowing up both the ground on which you walk and you as well. This is the way of sinfulness. We remember the admonishments in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, we are told, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. Elsewhere, we read how sinfulness manifests itself in corrupting our understanding as we read, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Galatians 5, 7-10. The way of sin infects the whole person. It infects the whole groups of people. To fail in being dutiful in our obedience to God will lead to great sorrow and devastation. Just as it was with the river, so sin, when it is allowed to indwell and infest a person or a congregation, will, slow, will slowly but assuredly overtake all the per- person and all the congregation. Thus, disobedience to God is like following Assyria. We have seen how this is the case with different philosophies of the day. We have seen how materialism, naturalism, and postmodernism are two worldviews which have been embraced by society at large and how even a little leaven infects the whole dough of a person. How even just accepting and embracing a different worldview will affect the rest of your life. And how there are many congregations who even do the same thing and follow after them. And this is the same thing that can come into our own forms of thought within the church and have devastating consequences for the congregation and its members. But so it is when we follow the world in other areas as well. When it comes to our evangelism, our preaching, our teaching, and our discipleship, when we fail to maintain the biblical standard, 
We are following a separate standard, one defined by our culture and the world around us. Just like those in ancient times who were willing to trust in Assyria because it was the cultural standard to have faith in the mighty military powers of the day, is it not the same today? Indeed, is this any different than our own understandings? When we willingly trust in the methodology of the world in order to bring about the greatest benefit, there have been so many congregations who have let go of the Bible, let go of theology, and let go of the truth of the gospel because they are told it makes people nervous and no one really wants to listen to it. As such, sin runs amok. Faithlessness runs abound. And the faith which is being proclaimed looks no more than a thin veneer of belief in God over a secular view of the world. Because this is the way of sinfulness and faithlessness. It has a domino effect. When the first domino falls, so the rest afterwards. The choices we make have these kinds of repercussions in our lives. Personal decisions as well as congregational decisions. As it says in Proverbs, whoever walks with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13.20 And whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in the wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 28.26 In other words, when we walk in the ways of the world, we will experience the repercussions of such a choice. So it is, I do not personally find the allurement of Assyria to be so shocking in our modern world. In a world where we quantify success with zeros and ones, and where we allow the concept of power to have a great amount of sway, where we want power, and if we gain power, then we are really fulfilling our destinies, then it shouldn't surprise us at all to have so many following blindly the powers of this world. They promise successes, but at the cost of the soul. The river, meanwhile, doesn't care if it overflows. It is indifferent to the suffering which it brings. Instead, it only does what it knows how to do. It floods over everything in this life. Is it possible that we have allowed such a flooding to occur in ourselves, in our congregations? How can we possibly know? Because the deception is always before us when it comes to this world. It will always tell us it can offer us more and more. It will always tell us to do away with what is found in the word. It will even go as so far as to twist it for its own purposes, its own power, and its own greed. It will utilize what is good and just and turn it into bad and unjust. How can we remain steadfast when we have such an enemy as this? The answer lies in the scriptures and the word of God given to us. It is not going to be by our own intellect or wisdom alone. It won't be found in the politicians or political ideologies which we hold. No, it will be found in the word of God and the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, to whom all the scriptures point to. If we allow anything other than the word to lead us, then we will be like those trusting in the river of Syria rather than the peaceful waters of Christ. Yet it requires a choice on our part. Do we continue to run along the banks of Assyria or walk along the gentle stream of Christ? Do we define ourselves by the powers of this world or do we define ourselves by our obedience to God's word? Do we allow ourselves to be told what our purpose is by the world or do we allow God to declare our purpose to glorify him in faithfulness? 
on the one hand is certain luxuries in this world, but certain disillusionment. On the other, there will be sorrows, and not always understanding the purpose, but eternal joy found in a loving God who promises to be with us even when we thrash about in the darkness. On the other hand, the first hand, is a world of power in our best life now, but certain death. And on the other, is a world of obedience and service to the supreme king of all, in which we sacrifice all, losing our even our lives, but we gain eternal life and glory. Assyria is calling to us even now. If we listen to the call, it will be sweet and seemingly innocent. But the mask of life that they paint is to cover the face of death. God, with all of his wisdom, though, pulls off that mask of life and reveals to us that face of death. He warns us of the repercussions of following after Assyria and shows us the better way of faith. While Assyria continues to call us to be uh, to obedience to it, God is ever faithful to extend his hand. He is faithful to remain diligent on our side, never swaying away from his great love he has for us. With the gentleness, he lifts us out of the mire of this world and into glory. So be admonished to not choose the river which floods. Instead, choose the peaceful way of our king, a way given by grace through faith. We do not need to heed the siren song. Instead, we can be transformed by our God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Only in him are we able to understand and have our afflictions changed to no longer desire the stuff of earth, but instead be able to cling to the holy God of all. Listen then to the prophet, because the only way we can be saved from the flood is by Emmanuel, God with us. The only way we can overcome the world is by God. If God is for us, then whoever stands against us will fail. We who stand on faith in God, however, will not fail because what we stand on is a firm foundation by faith. That is what it all boils down to. The world will seek to devour us in the flood. It will seek to find our weaknesses and exploit our weaknesses in order to overcome the whole. It, all it takes is for a little snippet. And the next thing you know, you will be overwhelmed if this is the case, then let us be on guard by God's grace and faith in him. By God's grace and faith in him. Place your trust in God who overcomes the world. He alone can stop the flood. So Isaiah continues to remind us of the choice and the repercussions. He continues to show us the devastation which comes on the banks of the river. But he also reminds us of the gospel, the good news. Emmanuel, God with us. Hold on to him, for he will surely always hold on to you. Naturally, this leads to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the gospel that we find all of these elements even being put together here in Isaiah so many years before Jesus comes into the world as a child. And the gospel begins with our origins, that we are all created in the image of God. God, the first cause of all the universe, of all the cosmos. That great being who is far above anything else. Who is truly and uniquely holy. 
He brought forth humanity to bear his image. And as we bear his image, we are given dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. And every person who we meet all have the mark of the image of God on them. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's a wonderful thing. And we can praise God for this. But then we see what happens. We saw it in the fall. And we see it with the people of Judah now. It is so easy to trust in the things of this world. It is so easy to look around us for the strong among us. Or for the powerful among us. For the rich and the famous and to say, ah, we're going to trust in these people. For the knowledgeable. And say, no, we're going to place our faith in what they say. And then what we do is we disregard the word of God. And we allow them to change even the word of God to fit their own narratives and their own beliefs instead of letting the word of God affect us and we filter it. And that's no different than what the devil first did in the garden. And we've just done the same trick over and over and over again, disregarding the scriptures, choosing to believe what we want to believe about it rather than simply trusting in what it says. None of these hermeneutical gymnastics, but just trusting in it. But in the end, we don't do that. In the end, we take it out of context. In the end, we try to say, allow it to say what we want it to say. And in the end, we're, we follow after Assyria, trusting in Assyria to protect us. Meanwhile, God is always there saying, by faith, by faith, by faith. Trust in me, trust in me. And so our sinfulness is evident and our faithlessness as well. And so the question is, what can we do? The truth is we're guilty of all these things. We're guilty of not trusting God. We're just as guilty as the people of Judah are of trusting in other means other than the scriptures, other than the word of God and Jesus Christ himself. And we trust in so many other things. We're guilty just as they are. So then the question is, what can stop the flood? Can anything pull us out of the flood that we continually jump into? And the answer is yes, Jesus Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh, we can be redeemed. And he pulls us out of the mire of sinfulness and faithlessness and shows us that we can live for God and that all the things that the prophet is urging the people of Judah to do, we can do, not by our own strength, but by the strength of Jesus Christ. We today can say, Emmanuel, God with us. And if God is with us, no enemy will ever stand against us. And no power is greater than God. So why trust in anything else? Why trust in any other name other than the name of God? Ultimately, God is leading us. Christ is leading us by the hand into eternal glory. If we should choose to follow after him, if we should desire him, and walk and step with the Spirit of God, who gives us all the information, teaches us as we should go. If we should be obedient and trusting in God and his faithfulness to us, and have faith in him, then we are being led into glory. But if we decide not to, and if we slap away the hand of God and we jump into the river, we'll drown.
will die. And so over and over again, we are being reminded, don't choose these things. Choose what is good. Choose what is life-giving. Choose God. Glory awaits us in faith. By God's grace, it awaits us. And we've experienced some of the glory now. Just wait until we experience it all. It's a mighty thing. And it's a beautiful thing. And we thank Isaiah for proclaiming so truthfully, Emmanuel, God is with us. There is nothing to fear. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel. We thank you too for the warnings that you have given us about this world, how this world will seek to overcome us and eradicate us. But you, Lord, you don't. In fact, you stand firm. You are always firm. And so, Lord, we ask that we would have strength to continue on in faithfulness and obedience to you. That we would desire to honor and to glorify you. And that we would seek to not walk next to the river, but the gentle waters of Jesus. Please, Lord, open our eyes to the Assyria around us, whatever that might be. And Lord, keep us safe as we walk down this path of faith. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I thank you all for joining for this Sunday service. I pray that you remain safe and healthy as you continue to worship from home. Um, And I pray that you would have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless. Hope to see you soon.